welcome to another edition of Digging Deeper with Brian Hale. Brought to you by Hale Multimedia, website and mobile app development for over 25 years. That's HaleMultimedia.com. Now listen in and join me online at DiggingDeeper.us. What's happening with the election? Election fraud. This waiting is the hardest part. I don't know if many of you remember 2000 when we had to wait 37 days to find out that uh, the hanging chads were in President Bush's favor. If anybody wants to know what a hanging chad is, we can let you know about that. So the hanging chad, I think, might have been a ruse to uh, get us to change over to uh, digital machines, which then became more of a nightmare than the hanging chads. Anyway, that'll be our subject for tonight. Election fraud, all the different ways that somebody found to cheat. And somehow, for some reason, all of the cheating seems to be coming from only one side of the machine's algorithm. So it doesn't seem like a glitch now. We're going to talk about that. We'll have a video for you here in just a second. We expect a few other members uh, to arrive momentarily, but uh, while we're waiting, I think we'll begin with our opening uh, statements. And I'd like to note that our committee is charged with overseeing the administration of federal elections, and today's hearing will help us fulfill the responsibility by providing an opportunity to hear from the vendors of most of our country's voting systems. This is the first time uh, the CEOs of the three major vendors have appeared together in a congressional hearing. The companies they represent provide at least 80 percent of the estimated 350,000 voting machines in use today, reaching over 100 million registered voters. However, uh, despite their outsized role in the mechanics of our democracy, some have accused these companies of obfuscating and in some cases misleading election administrators and the American public. Others suggest there's an insufficient regulatory structure for this sector. In the committee's May uh, 2019 hearing on election security, Lawrence Norton of the Brennan Center for Justice wrote in his testimony that, and I quote, there are more federal regulations for ballpoint pens and magic markers than are, there are for voting systems and other parts of our election infrastructure. So there may be more work to do and much for Congress to learn about this industry. Many have concerns about voting systems with remote access software, and I think we want to make sure that companies no longer sell voting machines that have network capabilities. In 2019, according to a report in Motherboard, a group of election security experts, uh, they uncovered that back-end election systems in at least 10 states were connected to the Internet despite one company's claim that its systems were not. We need also to understand supply chains. In December 2019, a study released by Interos, a supply chain monitoring company, showed that one-fifth or 20 percent of the components in a popular voting machine came from China-based companies. Furthermore, 
close to two-thirds, or actually 59 percent, of suppliers within that machine's uh, supply chain had locations in either uh, China or Russia. Interos didn't name the vendor that manufactured the voting machine, but said that it was widely used. I've also heard concerns about the ownership and control of voting machine vendors. Public reporting indicates that all three of the major voting uh, system vendors represented here today are privately held or are partially controlled by private equity firms. I believe it's in the public interest for Congress to better understand who could financially benefit from the administration of our elections. There are also, of course, threats to our voting infrastructure. <clears throat> we learned in Special Counsel Mueller's report that Russian intelligence officers targeted employees of voting technology companies uh, that developed software uh, to manage voter rolls and installed malware on the company network. We also know that our own voluntary voting system guidelines have not been substantially updated since 2005, before the iPhone was even available. It then took the EAC another decade to make small changes, which were adopted in 2015, almost five years ago. So there's more we have to do together to bolster public confidence and trust in our election systems. Uh, that is why this Congress has acted. Last June, the House passed H.R. 2722, the SAFE Act, that would require individual, individ, individual durable, voter-verified paper ballots, would require strict cybersecurity standards, require risk-limiting audits, prohibit wireless and Internet connectivity, and create accountability mechanisms for election technology vendors. The bill awaits consideration in the Senate. Just last month, Congress appropriated $425 million to the states to improve election security. This builds on the $380 million Congress appropriated in 2018. Securing our elections should not be a partisan uh, issue. Election security is about upholding a democracy of, by, and for the people, the American people, be they Republican, Democratic, third party, or no party at all. Our democracy is resilient, resilient, but it relies on everyone having their vote counted as cast. I now recognize our ranking member, Mr. Davis, for any opening statement he may wish to make. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, especially also thank you for holding this necessary and long overdue hearing uh, that I've been looking for, looking forward to since the beginning of this Congress. And I also want to thank all of our witnesses for taking the time to be here today to discuss the very important issues regarding elections and election security and elections administration. My agenda since becoming the ranking member of this committee has been and continues to be focused on nonpartisan and effective oversight of our nation's elections, which are maintained by the states, not the federal government. But that does not mean that this committee and the House itself does not have an important oversight role to play in securing elections. Our witnesses here today have state, county, and local jurisdictions as clients who know their electorate best. We also have witnesses who have experience with running those elections, but we know that threats from foreign actors to our nation's elections are not going away. It should be noted from the Senate Intelligence Committee's, Committee's report on the 2016 election, there were, quote, no indications that votes were changed, vote tallying systems were manipulated, or that any voter registration data was altered or deleted, end quote, by Russia or any foreign actor. DHS Assistant Secretary Jeanette Manfred said in the Senate Intel's open hearing in June of 2017 that, 
quote, we do not, we do have confidence in the overall integrity of our electoral system because our voting infrastructure is fundamentally resilient, end quote. While we have faith in the electoral system, we still have a responsibility to strengthen the relationship between states and the federal government to ensure that Americans' votes are and will continue to be protected. There has been some disagreement with my colleagues across the aisle on how best to accomplish this mission. But I believe our goal is the same. Instead of getting into a winded debate today between paper versus electronic, state versus federal, let's instead focus our efforts on areas within our federal reach that need improvement, areas where we may come to a bipartisan agreement, as we've seen in this committee in many times in the past. This committee created and passed the Help America Vote Act of 2002, which provided much-needed funds to states so that they could update their election security and voting infrastructure, and created the Election Assistance Commission, or EAC. One notable requirement of HAVA was for the EAC to create a set of, spe- a set of specifications and requirements against which voting systems can be tested, called the Voluntary Voting Systems Guideline, or VVSG. The EAC adopted the first VVSG in December of 2005 and approved an updated version, VVSG 1.1, in January of 2016. Now we are currently waiting for the EAC to produce the newest guidelines, VVSG 2.0. This year, our committee should also hold a hearing with the EAC to discuss this voting guideline development process and several other processes within our jurisdiction. Perhaps we should not only focus on the EAC, but instead HAVA itself. The Help America Vote Act was originally created in 2002 following the 2000 presidential election, and its many issues with paper ballots and ballot marking devices, much like we'll be discussing today. There have been many developments in voting system technology that are not addressed in the original HAVA language, like e-poll books and securing online registration databases. It's been almost 20 years since this law has been updated, and with the recent developments in election security and technology, it's time to modernize these laws again and incentivize new, more secure infrastructure development from vendors like each of you. Also, let's recognize the steps we've taken this Congress alone to secure our elections. As Chairperson Lofgren said, the FY2020 National Defense Authorization, recently enacted last month, contains several provisions related to election security. Most involve providing Congress, federal or state agencies with information about election interference, something that was in the election security bill I introduced, H.R. 3412, the Election Security Assistance Act. It also requires the Director of National Intelligence, in coordination with several other agencies, to develop a strategy for countering Russian cyber attacks against U.S. elections, another provision I had in my bill. In addition to the NDAA, the recent appropriations, as Chairperson Lofgren said, included $425 million for payments to states, territories, and the District of Columbia to make general improvements to the administration of federal elections, including upgrades to election technology and security. Much has been done, but we still have much to do, which is why you're all here with us today. A fundamental right of our nation's ability is to choose our leaders. The American people deserve that right to be protected. We should secure and protect our nation's elections without partisan politics, and I hope we can remember that not only during this hearing, but also for the duration of this Congress. Thank you, Madam Chair. I yield back. Thank you. The gentleman yields back. Uh, all other uh, 
uh, members are invited to submit an opening statement for the record. At this point, I'd like to welcome our witnesses. Thank you for being here today. Joining us are uh, the President and CEO of Election Systems and Software, Mr. Tom Burt, a President and CEO of Dominion Voting Systems, Mr. John Paulos, and President and CEO of Heart InterCivic, uh, Julie Mathis. I'd like to introduce each of the witnesses. First, Mr. Burt, Tom Burt, became President and CEO of Election Systems and Software in 2015. He joined ENS in 2008, leading sales, customer services, operations, and the product departments. Before joining ES&S, Mr. Burt developed his general management and sales leadership at McMaster Carr, a supply company, and Anderson Consulting, where he served in a variety of executive management roles. John Powles is the founding president and CEO of Dominion. In this role, he leads the company's overall business strategy and operations. Since its inception in 2003, Dominion has grown to support over 1,200 jurisdictions across North America. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Electrical Engineering from the University of Toronto, as well as a Master's of Business Administration from INSEAD Photon Blue, France. Julie Mathis joined Hart in 2014 but became its CEO just nine days ago, so congratulations. She's previously served as president and CFO of the company, and prior to uh, joining Hart, she served as vice president of finance at Dell. Ms. Mathis holds a Bachelor of Business Administration degree in accounting from the University of Texas at Austin and is a certified uh, public uh, accountant. I would at this point ask unanimous consent that uh, all members have five legislative days to revise and extend their remarks and the written statements be made part of the record, and without objection, uh, that is so ordered. I'd also like to remind witnesses that their entire written statements will be made part of the record and that the record will remain open for at least five days for additional materials to be submitted. At this point, I would ask each of the witnesses to rise and uh, hold up their right hand so that uh, you may... uh, answer this question. Do you swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that the testimony you are about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and beliefs, so help you God? The record will reflect that all three witnesses answered in the affirmative, and we will uh, first recognize you, Mr. Burt, for your testimony. Thank you. Chairperson Lofgren, Ranking Member Davis, and members of the House Administration Committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify on the vitally important subject of election security. My name is Tom Burt, and I'm CEO of Election Systems and Software. I'm encouraged to see the growing attention to stronger security for elections, and I'm thankful for the additional recent funding to the states provided by Congress under your leadership. Founded 40 years ago, ESNS's headquarters are in Omaha, Nebraska, where roughly half of our 490 employees live and work. Others live locally in or near the states where we provide products and services, including employees who reside in California, Georgia, Illinois, Maryland, North Carolina, and Ohio. Let me be clear and unequivocal with you. ESNS is committed to doing everything we can to safeguard our nation's election security. It is what every one of our employees wakes up and goes to bed thinking about. For us, every single day is election day. 
Additionally, I want to make clear that ESNS strongly supports federal mandates for the following three policies. First, an auditable paper record for every vote cast. Second, post-election audits of these paper records. And third, more rigorous standards for the programmatic security testing of voting equipment by a federally controlled regulatory body. I'd like to elaborate on a few of the exam many examples ESNS has raised <clears throat> ways that ESNS has raised the bar on itself for election security and called on Congress to raise the bar on the entire industry. First, as mentioned, it is important that an audible paper trail be required for every vote cast. ESNS has stopped selling new voting machines that do not produce an auditable paper record as the primary voting device. Second, we support and applaud the increase in dedicated resources coming from Congress, state and local officials, the Election Assistance Commission, and the Department of Homeland Security. We embrace our partnerships with these bodies because we believe that collectively we can provide necessary and continuous improvement in election security. While the recent appropriations bill included additional elections-related funding from Congress, we believe the federal government needs to devote these resources to state and local jurisdictions on an annual basis. Third, I'd like to highlight just a few of the many important steps ESNS takes to bolster election security. Every ESNS system we field undergoes rigorous testing by independent federal test labs accredited by NIST. Since 2009, ESNS has certified 22 unique voting system releases through this federal testing program. Our standard procedure is to conduct thorough and pervasive penetration testing of our hardware and software using the same modern security tools that hackers use to make sure our equipment is secure before it ever enters the federal program. We recommend increased EAC funding for security testing managed at the federal level with standards and testing methods that are applied evenly and comprehensively to all providers. All ESNS tabulation firmware and software are not only housed domestically, but are also written exclusively inside the United States. ESNS engages an independent third party to regularly test samples of the components inside our voting equipment that are programmable logic devices. We do this to validate the security of our supply chain and to ensure that no backdoor tampering has occurred. ESNS voting machine components are produced in ISO 9001 certified manufacturing facilities and the entire voting system is managed by a secure engineering change order control process. All final hardware configuration of our voting machines is performed exclusively in Omaha, Nebraska. We are working with our fellow industry providers seated with me here today to create the nation's first coordinated vulnerability disclosure program for elections equipment, designed to provide for even greater independent testing of voting systems through the use of ethical hackers. Because we strive for continuous improvement in all facets of our business, our actions related to election security are continuous, ongoing, and dynamic. Finally, I want to be clear that we do not believe we are perfect. On rare occasions, machines falter and humans make mistakes. When these circumstances arise, we always do everything possible to remedy the issue and ensure that final election reports, results are reported accurately. As I noted previously, we strongly urge Congress to require an auditable paper record for every vote cast as a matter of law to improve even more the integrity of our elections. While we are very proud of the actions we have taken to date in support of safe and secure elections, we recognize that this is a race that has no finish line. ESNS is committed to continually enhancing the security of our products for the long run. We take nothing more seriously than our role in supporting our nation's democracy. 
Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Uh, we'd be pleased to hear from you, Mr. Pallas. Uh, thank you very much. Chairperson Lofgren, Ranking Member Davis, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. My name is John Poulos, and I am the Chief Executive Officer of Dominion Voting Systems. We are a U.S.-owned company that currently provides voting systems and services to jurisdictions across 30 states and Puerto Rico. I agree with the importance of, this, of the issues being raised by the Chair and Ranking Member regarding election security and integrity at today's hearing. American elections safeguard and preserve the freedoms and rights guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. At Dominion, we take pride in our small role in assuring voters that they can have confidence in election results. We go to work every day understanding this important responsibility. By way of background, I formed the company with my partners in 2003 as an engineer and entrepreneur living in Silicon Valley. We are one of 76 new entrants innovating in the post-HAVA era, and we are one of the only one independently operating of those 76 in the industry today. Dominion was founded on three key pillars, security, transparency, and accessibility. The company abides by these principles to this day, driving innovations and advancements for auditability and resilience directed by federal, state, and local election officials. Supporting elections is a full-time proposition for our company. This past year alone, Dominion assisted state and local election officials in conducting nearly 300 elections, complete with the rigorous public scrutiny that comes with it. Dominion is constantly innovating and certifying enhancements and new features per state and local requirements. For 2020, we have been working closely with jurisdictions seeking to upgrade their voting systems. Older, end-of-life technology is being replaced with certified solutions that produce paper records for auditing and resilience. This comports with recommendations by DHS. Consistent with our founding tenets, Dominion works hard to promote a company culture of security. This starts with our people including annual mandatory background checks and cybersecurity awareness training for every employee in the company. It includes company-wide adoption of advanced digital protections and a defense-in-depth approach to cybersecurity. Moreover, we actively engage with the EAC, DHS, and other trusted third parties to maintain and enhance our enterprise security, including potential supply chain risks. Finally, we all we meet all independent testing requirements, including EAC, EAC standards developed in conjunction with NIST and requirements set forth by individual states. This includes source code reviews, penetration testing, and post-election audits. In terms of transparency, Dominion systems fully support independent third-party audits and reviews of all election data. For example, in 2018, the state of Colorado used Dominion systems in conducting the first statewide risk-limiting audit in the United States. This effort was so successful, it has become a benchmark for other states in verifying with high confidence that equipment tallies are accurate and reliable. To round out our company mission, we are committed to voter accessibility. Our systems ensure federal protections for privacy and equal voting rights, and ballot casting options for all, including American service members abroad. The existence of nation-state threats means that we must actively defend against any attempts to undermine faith in our democratic institutions. In this regard, we hope to see Congress continuing its work with state and local election officials to keep election systems secure. We commend Congress 
on its bipartisan investment of an additional $425 million to help election officials modernize their infrastructure. In closing, we remain fully committed to providing technology that supports free and fair elections. This includes support for an industry-wide coordinated vulnerability disclosure program for voting systems. We urge you to continue supporting and incentivizing real-time threat and information sharing from the intelligence community, streamlined certification options for patching and updating, and reliable baseline security standards for voting systems. All of these efforts will help make the voting process more secure. Thank you again for the opportunity to share our company's perspective. Thank you so much for your testimony. And now our final witness in this panel, Ms. Matthews, would be pleased to hear from you for five minutes. Chairperson Lofgren, Ranking Member Davis, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunities to speak with you today. My name is Julie Mathis, and I'm the CEO of Heart InterCivic. Heart InterCivic is based in Austin, Texas, where we have been located since our inception over 100 years ago. Heart began as a paper ballot printer and over the past 20 years has grown organically, one new customer at a time, to become one of the top three voting system providers in the country. Our customers are local election officials and our business is built on partnering with them every day to help solve their problems, enhance their processes, and ensure they deliver secure, accessible, and transparent elections. Our products include the software and devices that these election officials use to create ballots, capture votes, tabulate votes, and audit the results. Our systems are regulated, as each is submitted to federal certification through the EAC as well as to state certification processes before any local jurisdiction purchases them. It's also important to note which aspects of the election ecosystem HART does not serve. HART does not build the products that manage voter registration, voter check-in at the polling place, the public reporting of election night results, or any other aspect of election or data administration. These aspects of the election system and their vendors are not currently regulated. I'm in Washington, D.C. this morning because Hart strongly believes that voting system companies are one of the many critical players ensuring American elections are accessible, transparent, and secure. I can tell you much has improved over the past few years for Hart and for the industry, but we know that challenges remain and we must continue to evolve and adapt. So what has improved? First, what has improved as a company is our products. We are proud that our Verity voting system is one of the newest and we believe most secure line of election products on the market. Rather than patch updates onto older technology, Verity is a wholly new product designed from its core to meet modern security standards. Verity's robust security strategy is further described in my written testimony. Second, what has improved as an industry? The election industry is far better informed, better supported, and more agile when it comes to cybersecurity threats as a direct result of the Department of Homeland Security's designation of the American election system as critical infrastructure. Because of that designation, we are a founding member of DHS's Sector Coordinating Council, a group of diverse elections-related vendors under DHS's stewardship to address resilience policies and practices. Similarly, we are a founding and engaged member of the IT-ISAC, as well as an active member of the EI-ISAC. All offer a range of valuable programs, free assessments, and educational materials, but the biggest improvements have been to our ability to communicate and coordinate around cyber threat information and disclosures. So where else can we all continue to evolve and adapt? Number one, continual evolution of the voting system guidelines. We strongly support the process to roll out updated national standards. We have submitted our comments during the public comment period draft of the draft VVSG 2.0 and are in regular communication with the EAC to provide further insights to inform the new standard. We share your frustration over the slow adoption of the new standards, yet HART has proactively enhanced the security of our products while awaiting the release of the 2.0 standards. 
In addition, we encourage Congress and the EAC to continue to explore ways to apply federal oversight to other election technology, especially areas of higher vulnerability, such as voter registration, electronic poll books, and election night results reporting. Number two, speed up the federal certification process at the EAC. We are optimistic that Congress's recent increase in funding may allow additional resources to be dedicated to the ongoing overhaul of the VVSG and to enhance certification resources at the EAC. The more resources and funding that Congress can dedicate to the EAC and NIST, the sooner we will be able to bring the next generation of products to market. Number three, ongoing vigilance over cybersecurity practices within our companies and within local jurisdictions. The most important shift in institutional attitudes toward securing the integrity of election systems is that security is not a static process. At heart, we recognize that cybersecurity threats will evolve, and so we, along with local jurisdictions, must continually adjust to new risks and and adapt with new technology, new processes, and new policies. In conclusion, much has improved over the last few years. Not only are there new products in the market with enhanced security protocols, but the election industry is much better informed, more coordinated, and more aware. But this enhanced awareness also highlights the clarity that securing the American election system is a race with no finish line. It will take constant vigilance, funding, partnership, and coordination across all aspects of the election ecosystem to ensure that elections are secure each and every year. At heart, our goal is, and always has been, to provide election officials with accessible and secure technology. We dedicate significant time and resources ensuring our products meet or exceed the latest security standards. And because of this, we are a trusted partner of the local officials who run elections in our country. Thank you, and I look forward to answering any questions you may have. Thank you very much, and thanks to all of our witnesses for your um, verbal testimony as well as your uh, written uh, testimony. We will now go to uh, the time in our hearing when members have an opportunity to ask uh, questions for as long as uh, five minutes. And I'll start, um, you know, as we all know, and we've recognized that the Concern about election security has been heightened since the 2016 election. We've had uh, reports from our intelligence community that we should be on the alert from threats, uh, especially foreign threats to the security of our systems. Right now, there are no uh, federal reporting requirements that mandate disclosure of crucial information about some of your key business practices or experiences. And I'd like to know from each of you, and this is going to be a yes or no question, would you support requirements concerning the following five items? Um, First, your cybersecurity practices, including incident response procedures. Two, any cyber attacks you've experienced. Three, personnel policies and procedures including whether background checks and other procedures are in place to safeguard against inside attacks. Four, details of corporate ownership and foreign investment. And finally, supply chains, for example, where parts, software patches, installations come from, how they're transported, and how they are kept secure. Would you, if you could answer whether you would agree to all or if there are some that you would object to, why? Chairperson, I would say yes, that we would support a requirement for all five of those uh, uh, requirements that you listed. Thank you. Chairperson, we would agree with that as well. Thank you. As would we. That's very helpful. As you know, we have passed uh, a pretty robust bill uh, in the House. It's pending 
in the Senate, and perhaps your testimony will encourage them uh, to move forward. Um, I'd like to talk about uh, supply chains. As I mentioned in my opening statement, concern has been raised about uh, components. Um, the Interos report uh, showed that a majority of suppliers within a widely used voting machine supply chain had locations in either Russia or China. They didn't uh, indicate which company. So I'd like to ask each of you, do you have components in your supply chain that come from either Russia or China? Uh, Chairperson, we do not have components that come from Russia. We do have a limited number of components that come from China. What percentage would that be? Uh, I can't give you a percentage, but, but with respect to this issue, uh, the potential for a backdoor threat really doesn't pertain to inert items like a piece of plastic or a piece of metal. What we really should be concerned about are the programmable logic devices. What, what type of components come from China? Can you tell me the nature sure. of the components? Uh, I'll give you one example. Our DS-200, which is a precinct level tech. Well, no, I don't want examples. I want do any of your chips, do any of your software, is it just a piece of plastic? In our DS-200, we have one of the nine programmable logic devices that we actually source from a U.S. company based in Milpitas, California, in the heart of Silicon Valley, that produces that programmable producing logic device in a, in a factory in China. Okay, thank you. Uh, thanks for the question. Um, uh, the, it, it wasn't our company in the Interesis report, but we do have components in our products that come from China. Um, and um, I don't know the exact percentage. I can certainly get that to the committee uh, through my staff. Happy to work with you on getting the exact number. Uh, our products, our tabulated products, have always been manufactured in the United States. And well, can so you, if you before look Before you go forward, what are the components that, that you are get from China? Uh, so, for example, LCD components. Um, the actual glass screen um, on the interface, um, down to the chip component level of capacitors and resistors. Uh, several of those components, uh, to our knowledge, are not even there, – there's no option for manufacturing uh, of those in the United States. Um, we would welcome um, – guidelines and best practices from the committee and from the federal government in terms of this is this is not a problem that's unique to the election right. industry. Thank you. Ms. Mathis? Uh, yes. Um, similar, similar feedback here. We take the security of our supply chain very seriously, and we actively monitor and assess all aspects of that supply chain, including country of origin. Um, so do you have components from China or Russia? We do not have components from Russia, but we do have, similar to my colleagues, we do and, have components. Um, and uh, what would be the nature of those components? We, similar uh, resistors, capacitors, the, the global supply chain for technology uh, components of that sure. sort. And what percentage do you know? I don't have that. We'll follow up with that. I'll turn now to Mr. Davis for his five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. And thank you again to the witnesses who are here. Um, each of you, just a simple yes or a no. Um, is there any method of voting that's 100% secure? No. Uh, no. No. To your knowledge, has a foreign state ever successfully breached or hacked any of your vote tallying election machines? Mr. Burke? No. Mr. Post? No. No. Uh, what then was the primary target of our foreign adversaries in the 2016 election? Mr. Burke? Well, Ranking Member, I think there are potentially uh, differing public views on that, uh, but what I can 
say is that, uh, as, as you asked a minute ago, we've seen no evidence that any of our voting systems have been tampered with in any way. Mr. Polos? Uh, I, would, I would agree with that statement. We feel the same way. I uh, can't speak to what the primary uh, purpose was of, of, of the attacks, but uh, there's, no, to our knowledge, no evidence on, on our systems as well. Well, you guys already answered that. Ms. Mathis, do you know what was attacked during 2016? Do, do not have personal awareness of that. Okay. I believe reports say there were centralized voter registration systems, even one in my home state of Illinois. Uh, where do these centralized state voter registration system databases come from? Uh, ranking member, they, it's, it's uh, various depending on... The do they come from any of your companies? Uh, we do host uh, voter re registration systems for a limited number of states, yes. How about you, Mr. Polos? We do not. We do not. Okay. Uh, they're actually a requirement of the Help America Vote Act. Uh, and then also, Mr. Burt, to your knowledge, are there any parameters within HAVA that require... <coughs> excuse me. Are there any parameters within HAVA that require basic security around these state voter registration databases? I believe the language in HAVA uh, as it relates to voter registration is limited at best, and, and I'm not aware offhand of any specific language that pertains to. Great, and I'll stick with you because you're the only one that actually deals with the centralized voter <clears throat> registration, and the other two do not. Do you find this concerning and believe it's something that we should address in HAVA? I do. I think uh, it's a gap in the oversight of the Election Administration or Election Assistance Commission, and I believe you could put electronic poll books into the same bucket with voter registration. Okay. Are you all members of the Sector Coordinating Council? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, as well as the IT-ISAC and the EI-ISAC? Yes. Yes. Okay. How, how have these entities increased vulnerability disclosure? Mr. Burke? Uh, you know, prior to 2016, there was virtually no communication between vendors and, and those entities, and there is regular sharing of, of information, of threat information, uh, as well as routine uh, meetings, many face-to-face, -to, -face, to make sure that the lines of communication are open at all times. Okay. Mr. Polos, uh, how many different vulnerability disclosure programs are there currently? Uh, to my knowledge, we're, we're part of uh, one and in, currently working on several more uh, with my colleagues here uh, to create um, further disclosure programs. Okay, Ms. Mathis, how do we ensure that these new programs are adequate to disseminate known vulnerabilities to those that need to know? I think it's important that we continue to work together with the cybersecurity experts that, that have already been um, uh, involved through the designation of, as critical infrastructure has really assisted us with ensuring that we understand kind of the appropriate disclosures. Okay. Would you all agree that there are a lot more people, both in the media and public interest groups and Congress, for that matter, riding on the topic of election security since the 2016 election? Yes. Would you all agree? Yes. Uh, I'm actually happy for this increased attention. I believe it's put an important issue to the forefront. Uh, I'm concerned about the incentive for outside groups to mischaracterize the threats facing our elections. Is this a concern that each of you share? Yes. Yes. I got one yes. 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 Thank you. I didn't think C-SPAN could see you guys nodding your heads. As well. <laughs> yes. Uh, over the past several years, DEFCON has garnered a lot of publicity. Uh, have any of you reached out to DEFCON to participate? Uh, ranking member, we have had discussions with them, uh, but we have not uh, provided our equipment to them for testing. Okay. Mr. Polo? Uh, uh, ranking member, we reached out to DEFCON uh, this year in 2019, uh, interested in um, a more... Uh, collaborative 
penetration testing with stakeholders. Uh, we reached out with one organizer and had a plan. We actually did send uh, our modern uh, certified equipment to DEF CON, uh, but in the days leading up to that event, uh, I think that there was an internal disagreement within the conference. Uh, so we ended up not working at that conference. But okay. if it's not DEF CON, we're committed to that. How about you, Ms. Mathis? We, we have actually submitted our systems through the DHS's uh, penetration testing process through uh, Idaho National Labs. So we've, we've gone that route. But not DEFCON? Not DEFCON. Okay. Thank you. I yield back. Gentleman yields back. I recognize now the gentleman from Maryland, Mr. Raskin, for five minutes. Madam Chair, thank you very much. Um, the Consumer Product Safety Commission advises manufacturers of consumer products to identify all reasonably foreseeable hazards associated with use of their products and to include safety warnings and steps to reduce risk of accident uh, in the user guides. And there are requirements like this for motor vehicles and warnings put in lots of different owner manuals. Would you support a requirement for voting system vendors to identify security risks associated with use of your voting equipment and recommendations for users to mitigate those risks, such as manual audits of paper ballots. And just go down the line, Mr. Burt, let's start with you. Thank you, Congressman. We would support that. And, and as, a, as a global comment, I think we would support any requirement that applies to all vendors in our industry that would help educate uh, both the users of our systems and anyone who interacts with them. Thank you. Congressman, I would agree with that statement as well. We would support uh, any initiative that uh, Congress puts forward. Okay. And, Ms. And, and we agree also with that. All right. Very good. Um, the, there has been uh, some reporting recently about the lobbying practices of, election, of uh, technology uh, vendors in the election field. Uh, the city control in Philadelphia issued an investigative report that showed serious flaws in the voting system procurement process, um, which I think resulted in ESS getting the $29 million contract. The reports uh, indicate that ESNS spent $425,000 lobbying city officials dating back to 2013 before being awarded the contract. Uh, contract. Is this just standard practice in the industry and with your business, Mr. Burt? Well, Congressman, uh, starting about a year and a half ago, we actually hired our first ever federal uh, consultant to help us spend time in Washington educating federal officials on who we are as a company, uh, how we go about our business practices. We use consultants at the state level for the same purposes, to educate decision makers. Well, in, in this case, it was used to, to help procure a contract, right? It, it was used to educate any of those involved about who we are as a company, the values we hold, and how we conduct our business. Okay. Do, do you also in, uh, get involved in making campaign finance contributions or expenditures? No, we do not. Okay. Do, uh, Mr. Pillows, do you guys engage? No, we don't uh, make campaign finance contributions. You do spend money on the lobbying side? Yes, we do. Um, at the state and local level? Correct. Okay. And Ms. Mathis? Our involvement in lobbyists has been very minimal and primarily related to helping educate us on local procurement processes within certain jurisdictions. Okay. Um, the, I'm curious about um, whether uh, each of your companies engage in adversarial testing on your voting systems. Mr. Poulos, do you? Uh, we have in the past, uh, and it's something that we're looking to expand in the future. 
Okay, Mr. Berg. Uh, we, we do routinely. We've hired third parties to perform penetration testing, as Ms. Mathis mentioned earlier. Uh, we also participated uh, through a DHS program with the Idaho National Lab to perform penetration testing on our equipment. Okay, and Ms. Mathis? Yes, and we have been involved in that, that same penetration testing approach by the uh, DHS's recommended Idaho National Labs. Okay, so do you routinely allow uh, academic researchers to test the quality and security and integrity of your products without uh, pre-screening them? Um, in other words, is it, is, do you generally permit outside investigators to come and check it out? We're, we, we have not uh, involved academics who haven't been pre-screened. With the coordinated vulnerability disclosure program that we're working on with our colleagues, the idea is to have a firm uh, be able to manage a network of white hat ethical hackers to, to broaden the access to our systems without making this information open to the public. Okay. Mr. Poulos. Uh, Congressman, we have done that in the past, uh, as far back in, in, in New York in 2009. Uh, we found it, the, the exercise was useful, um, and we are looking forward to doing more of that uh, within the confines of uh, a, a reality-based scenario of testing. Okay. Uh, and Ms. Mathis. And, and we would support um, <clears throat> the appropriate disclosure of that information. It's important that we not undermine voter confidence in, in, in ensuring that we actually evaluate and assess kind of the type of disclosures necessary. Okay. Um, and finally, um, I remember from my days in Annapolis uh, that there was sometimes conflict between the disability rights community um, and the, the champions of security in the process. And I wonder, Mr. Pillis, will you just try to illuminate that? If you uh, sure. Most recently with um, a, a lot of the public commentary around ballot marking devices, um, there is a, uh, a concern regarding uh, the format of how ballots are printed for voters as the voter record. Uh, and that sometimes um, is in um, uh, a natural conflict between universal accessibility um, and security initiatives. Okay. I yield back. The gentleman's time has expired. Gentleman from North Carolina, Mr. Walker, has recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chairman. I believe each of you mentioned in your written testimony frustration with the voluntary voting system guidelines update that is ongoing at the Elections Assistant Commission. This frustration has been shared by others in the election industry, as well as this issue seems to have a lot to do with the antiquated HAVA or Help America Vote Act. Where can we as a committee focus to help update the HAVA? I'll start with you, Mr. Burt. Uh, thank you for your question, Congressman. Um, I think that the EAC, given the resources and funding they have, do, do a very good job, and sometimes it amazes me how much they are able to accomplish given the resources they have. I think we should ask them to broaden the scope and purview of their oversight, and to do that, of course, they need more, uh, more funding and more support. Okay. I, I, would, I would agree with uh, Mr. Burt's comments, and I would add to that a particular, a particular example as it pertains to patching, uh, specifically of third-party software such as Windows, where a patch is readily available, um, and it's sometimes very cumbersome and timely to get that okay. uh, tested patch to end customers. Thank you. Ms. Mathis, anything add to that? I would agree with those comments. Okay. All right. Uh, how has your relationship with the DHS evolved? Um, how have state and local authorities responded to DHS? 
Uh, I'll put a couple of these in who wants to take it. Is DHS helping to secure forward supply chains, and what type of services does DHS currently offer you? Mr. Mr. Polis, let me start with you. Uh, let's start with what type of services does DHS currently offer you? Uh, it offers several different programs. Uh, we've taken part of uh, physical security review. Uh, they offer uh, product testing. Um, and um, in terms of the evolution of that relationship, I would say it was zero four years ago, um, and it's been very helpful for not only us but the customers we serve. Mr. Burt, uh, is DHS helping you to secure foreign supply chains? Uh, they are not, and, and I think that's a real opportunity, whether it's through DHS or Department of Defense or somewhere else in the federal government. As Mr. Poulos mentioned, I think the vendors are eager to work in partnership with the federal government to make sure that we're following best practices and we safeguard to the best of our abilities our nation's voting equipment. Just reiterating this again, in working with the DHS as well as your own companies, uh, any evidence that China's Russia has hacked any portion or part of this, uh, either has the DHS discovered any of that or assumed or even suggested that or anything of those nature? No, we've never, we've never received any evidence or even commentary that suggests that, that these systems have been hacked. No, no. Ms. Mathis. Uh, final question here, and, and if we can expand a little bit on this. Uh, have each of you hired an executive level chief information security officer? Mr. Burt? We have. We have. Method. We have an extended uh, internal security team, and we have a CISSP expert on our staff. Mr. Polis, what are the uh, qualifications for such a position? What are the requirements of that position? What are you looking for there? Uh, well, we have, we have that bifurcated in terms of uh, corporate IT assets and product uh, security, um, and there are two different sets of requirements. I, I can, I can, I don't, can't list them to you off the top of my head, but I can certainly work with you. Mr. Burt, Congressman, we were fortunate enough to uh, find a gentleman who was the Chief Information Security Officer for Health and Human Services at the federal level, and he's been with us now for a couple of years. So he has vast experience working with various government agencies in, in that capacity as a Chief Information Security Officer. And let me stay with you, Mr. Burt. I, I want to unpack this a little bit more. Why is a position like this especially relevant in developing equipment for modern elections? I, I think as we look forward, uh, it, it is necessary for someone with deep technical expertise to advise the company in its actions, to do everything it can to make sure that we are uh, making the right decisions to protect the security of our equipment and our services. Okay. Ms. Polis, same. Uh, I agree with those comments in, in terms of a deep understanding of best practices and where the state of the art is evolving to. Um, it really benefits the security of the products. Real, real quickly for the three of you there, if you were to give yourselves a grade, one out of ten, ten being excellent, the highest mark, as far as your attentiveness to make sure that there's no corruption or no, nothing nefarious, uh, any kind of behavior going on, how would you score your company as far as the time, the attention, the resources that you're putting into this, Mr. Burt? Congressman, we spend a great deal of time on a regular basis. Our effort, uh, I can honestly say our effort is as strong as we are capable of, but we are always looking to find ways to improve our effort and to partner with other agencies to improve our ability to uh, mitigate any risks that Mr. might be Polis. there. Uh, it, the security of our products and our infrastructure is a key priority for us. It always has, uh, and it uh, is reflected in not only the amount of uh, time and uh, resources we spend to it. Mathis? Same thing. Uh, we absolutely dedicate. Um, it's, it's in our DNA. It, it, it's pervasive across our people, our process, our procedures, our product. Thank you very much. And if this doesn't work out, uh, you may have a career in politics that none of you gave me a number or answered the question, so no. I yield back to my <laughs> <answer>. <laughs>
The other gentleman from North Carolina, Mr. Butterfield, is recognized for five. Thank you, Ms. Lofgren, for convening this very important hearing today. I cannot think of a hearing uh, except for the debate on the War Powers Act uh, that we could be having right now. This is, this is critically important to our democracy. And certainly thank you to the three witnesses for your testimony today. Uh, Mr. Burt, let me start with you, sir, and uh, I want to talk specifically about North Carolina. You know I represent a district in North Carolina. There's been a lot of controversy surrounding uh, your company's recent dealings with elections officials in my state. Uh, some have referred to what transpired as a bait and switch. I don't know if that's warranted or unwarranted. I hope it's unwarranted. Uh, can you please explain to me why you waited so long to tell North Carolina election officials that you did not have enough voting systems to cover the 2020 primaries. Thank you for your question, Congressman. Yeah. Uh, I have read that bait-and-switch comment. The situation in North Carolina, we applied for certification for our system in North Carolina roughly five years ago. We went through all of our testing. The report was written. It went to the state board for approval, and at that, por at that point in time, the state board essentially dissolved. There was not a quorum at the state board for over four years. That system that we got tested five years ago finally got approved this year. Because it was five years old, we immediately went in after that and got our latest and most secure system updated. And it is that system, the most recently certified system, that we've delivered to the citizens of North Carolina. So if a bait and switch means that we decided to send the most recent and most secure system to the citizens of North Carolina, that is what we did. All right. I'm informed that your company admitted installing remote access software on some of, of its election systems and that it sold over a six-year period. Were any remote wireless-equipped systems sold to elections officials in my state? Uh, Congressman, that practice happened between the year 2000 and 2006. Uh, no system that we have brought through the EAC program since the year 2007 has been equipped with any kind of remote access software. We have confirmed that there is no system uh, out there in the country being used today that has a remote access system uh, attached to it. All right. Ms. Mathis, do you support federal legislation to expand the use of post-election audits like risk-limiting audits in federal elections? We absolutely do. Uh, Mr. Polis? Absolutely. And Mr. Burns? Yes. Thank you. Do you think that all manual audits of paper records can be conducted on all the voting systems that you currently sell? We have um, a portion, a, a subset of our product that actually uh, uh, does not permit risk-limiting audits. There are other audits and other testing that, that fulfill the, a, a fully um, uh, ability to, to confirm the accurate results. All right. Uh, let me ask you, Mr. Polis, what do you do to ensure that your subcontractors and your manufacturers follow industry best practices on cybersecurity? In other words, do you conduct background checks and the like on your subcontractors? Uh, on our direct subcontractors, yes, we do. And uh, for our manufacturing partners, uh, we make sure that uh, they adhere to ISO standards. Mr. Byrne? Uh, we, we do the exact same thing. We perform background checks on the contractors that we hire directly, and any of our manufacturing partners are all ISO certified. This is background. Not, a, not a cursory background check. You do an in criminal, background yeah, detailed check. background check, and that's part of the ISO certification. Ms. Process. Mathis, you yeah, as well. You. Mm -hmm. All right. Are you aware of any cyber attacks in which the attacker gained unauthorized access to your internal systems, corporate data, or consumer data? Ms. Mathis, we are not. 
you have any evidence that this has happened? We do not, no. We All right. Mr. Polis? Uh, no, we do not. And Mr. Byrd? No, we do not. Thank you. Let's see how I'm doing on time. All right. Uh, back to you, Mr. Byrd. We know you're committed to no longer sell paperless machines, but you are selling the ex express vote with an autocast feature that has the voter skip that has the voter to skip the verification of the paper record, given that the primary criticism of paperless machines was that they did, did not have a voter verified paper audit trail, do you think, do you think it's, it's, it's correct to say that you will no longer sell paperless machines, uh, but you are selling a machine that can record votes without a paper trail? Uh, Congressman, I don't believe, yeah. I, I'm not aware off the top of my head of any uh, customers who are using that particular product in an autocast fashion. I believe all the customers who are using that product present uh, the ballot back to the voter for verification in one way or another, either through a screen or by kicking out the piece of paper. All right. And finally, for Ms. Mathis, currently listed on your website in the products that you sell is a paperless DRE machine called the Verity Touch. I guess I have that right, Verity Touch. Meanwhile, there is a clear consensus among experts that the paper ballots are needed to ensure that voters' votes are counted properly. Why do you think, why do you continue to sell a machine? We all know it puts the integrity of the voters' ballot at risk. We, we actually believe our DREs are secure. And uh, it's not just Hart's belief, but we have had those products um, federally certified through the EAC, have gone through extensive accredited test lab testing. Certain states have certified those. They comply with all VPSG standards, uh, and they comply with all our extensive security protocols that we have throughout the Verity, um, through that, the Verity platform, including um, extensive multi-layer uh, defense in-depth um, security protocols. Thank you. I'm out of time. I yield back. The gentleman's yeah. time has expired. We'll have a second round of, of questions so that um, we can further explore this. The gentlelady from Ohio is recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much. Chair of our elections subcommittee. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. Thank you all so much for your testimony. Uh, just a couple of questions, really, but let me just first say, I understand that this is a business with you all, but I think my colleague, Mr. Butterfield, said it best. It is critical to our democracy, and your equipment is purchased with taxpayer dollars. So there are some things that we do expect, uh, and there is some information that we expect you to give us. Uh, so as I, as I say that, let me just also say that uh, I'm from Cuyahoga County, Ohio. We have ES&S machines. But in the state of Ohio, we have 13 different voting systems. Uh, and so when we talk about ensuring the security of our systems, what we find is that we probably need more trained examiners because we have so many different systems. So let me first ask, do you support um, increasing the number of testing labs so that we can test voting equipment examiners? Yes, we do. All of you? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Um, secondly, uh, it's my understanding that the testing standards that we currently use date back as far as 2005. We're in 2020, but we're using standards. And so what we have done is basically say to the Windows people, you determine what the upgrades and security should be because you're dancing to their tune, not to the EAC. Is that how you see it as well? Congresswoman, I think there is certainly an opportunity to update uh, the voting system standards and actually to broaden the program to include more security-specific testing. That's what we would like to see. 
Everybody go. I, I'm sorry, Congresswoman, I don't understand the question. Well, you're doing upgrades to your systems sure. on a regular basis, not based upon what we think is a security issue, but what Windows is telling you you need to do. Oh, there. Because that's the operating system. Uh, it, both, both is true, actually. So we are regularly uh, innovating uh, new features that are that come from local jurisdictions and state officials, uh, based on uh, evolving threats and evolving state of the art of the technology. Uh, in addition, we do uh, use Windows um, and Microsoft products that do have their own patches. Um, that's not core to the tabulation product as well. We do not have. Uh, off-the-shelf Windows. I, I'm not suggesting that. What I'm okay. suggesting is that when you do, when Microsoft calls you and tells you you need to do this upgrade, you do it. Uh, we, 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 we implement it. We test it. We submit it for certification. We do not implement it, uh, for example, in a county in Ohio until uh, it is certified. I, I, I'm not suggesting that you don't test it. Okay. My point is that you don't do it based upon what we believe is a security issue. You do it upon what Microsoft believes is one. Right. I, okay. You don't have to defend Microsoft. I'm yeah, not no, trying to do anything uh, to Microsoft. I'm just making the that, point no, that's that true. we need to be more involved in the process. That's true. Okay. Um, will all of you commit today to allowing researchers to test your products without pre-screening or hand-picking those researchers to do it? Congressman, we're not interested in hand-picking. What we're, what we're interested in is making sure that we uh, attract um, hackers who can make our systems better without requiring that the information that they discover be put into the public domain. So what we'd like to see is for the EAC to actually manage a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program and have the EAC choose the researchers and assemble the team and manage the program. We so think that's, that's a yes? Yes, we would like to see the, the EAC manage that program. The only reason I'm cutting up, I have five sure. minutes. Understood. Um, and I ask each of you, what do you do to ensure that your subcontractors and manufacturers follow best practices on cybersecurity? Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Butterfield, I already asked you about, uh, you know, your background checks. If you could answer the first part of the question. Um, well, in our case, uh, for example, our lead manufacturer uh, manufactures uh, products for the Department of Defense and has accreditations under ISO. Um, and so w we look for that as a prerequisite to doing business with, with that manufacturer. Very similar, yes. We look at ISO standards. We also have uh, deep quality uh, reviews and ensure that we're managing our suppliers very, very closely. Very good. I, I work for the federal government, too. I don't trust everybody else that works for the federal government. So I want to be sure that you're looking at them, not just hiring them because they work for the federal government. Fair enough. Uh, I yield back, Madam Chair. Gentlelady yields back. The gentleman from California, Mr. Aguilar, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairwoman. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, products and, and defects, um, and we can go down the line, Mr. Mr. Burt, um, uh, if, if you'll indulge me by starting. Do you have built-in systems and practices that look for, specifically look for defects along the way, and how long, can you describe that evolution of, of how long it takes to, to find a defect, create a solution, and then, and then implement that solution? We, we do have built-in uh, systems ranging from various source code reviews to penetration testing to functional testing. Um, in the event, if, if, a, if a system has been fielded, been approved by the EAC and delivered to a state and has been fielded, uh, and there's a, there's a functionality, piece of the functionality that we want to change, 
that process to make the change currently have it go through the federal testing program and redeployed to the state can be six months to a year depending on the scope and, and depth of the changes being made. Do you inform the customer when that when that happens? Yes. If a if a defect or something, or are they under an obligation to pay for uh, a, a fix? No, no. In those cases, those are covered under uh, licenses that and, and we make the changes and, and roll them back out to the customer. Mr. Poulos? Uh Similar with Dominion, uh, we comprehensively do situational uh, testing on all of our products, and, and that is an ongoing thing uh, in the company on all current products. Any issue that we find is immediately disclosed. Uh, that's actually uh, regulated in some states, uh, such as your home state, um, within a very specific time period, depending on the severity of the issue. And then per the license, they would, you would, you would. It would not be an extra charge, no. Very similar. We we disclose any of those types of uh, uh, critical um, election day type malfunctions up through the EAC. So that's all, that's all regulated right now. Great. I appreciate it. Shifting gears to, uh, you talked about the Idaho National Lab and and some of the DHS testing work that you've done. Uh, With respect specifically to cyber attacks, um, uh, that, uh, and, and we all understand the stakes here and, and what's involved, uh, as do you. Um, can you talk specifically about how you work with the federal government um, uh, when cyber attacks uh, potentially occur? Do you report those um, uh, potential intrusions uh, to your customers or to the federal government? Um, and do you believe you have a time, an obligation to timely uh, notification uh, to customers when a security breach of that of that product um, or your company happens, Mr. Burt? Uh, we do. We've, we have we share information with the uh, MSISAC and the EIISAC. Um, so we're, we don't we don't, for example, share uh, that a specific IP address has been uh, identified as an attempt to penetrate a firewall. Of course, that happens thousands of times a day from all over the world. So that sort of information isn't, isn't useful, uh, but, but through our coordination with DHS and the MSISAC, they help us to identify and understand uh, sort of potential attacks that might be uh, exceptionally dangerous. What, what would that look like? In the last 60 days, how many times would you notify a customer or the... Uh, we, or we don't the, notify customers of, of the MSISAC, but many of the customers participate and receive the same information. So it's sort of, it's not specific to our business. It's commentary about what's going on around the country. So there's no way for a customer to, to know that there was a potential breach. I'm not talking about a ping and an IP address. I'm talking about... Uh, a, a breach um, and a potential intrusion into into your system. We've had no breaches uh, to report. What's that dialogue like with the, with DHS, with any um, uh, federal entity uh, through your through your systems? How often is that? There, there is a process. If a breach were to occur, DHS has issued guidelines in terms of the communication. We've practiced those. Uh, through national tabletop exercises. We actually had the Department of Homeland Security travel to Omaha to conduct a tabletop exercise uh, on premise so that we can uh, essentially practice in the event that a breach did occur to make sure that we would be in position to communicate it effectively. Mr. Poulos? Uh, very similar, Congressman. Um, we, we have not had any potential breaches, so we haven't actually reported anything to a customer, but our policy is absolutely that we would immediately communicate any potential breach to a customer. 
Ms. Mathis. Very similar. We we have not had any any breaches, but we have created a very robust incident response plan that has been um, updated to include disclosures and, and notification all directions, DHS to customers to ensure that we've, we've got the appropriate communication. At what level would you, Ms. Mathis, uh, uh, would you flag uh, for DHS? I understand that, that all of you are saying, you know, you haven't been breached, but right. at what level? There's a difference between being breached right. and being pinged by an right. IP address in a foreign country. Give, right. give me, talk with me about that spectrum of intrusion on a cyber right. site. Well, we, we actually are, are, are erring on the side of, um, um, if anything, too much disclosure, if there is such a thing. We actually had an example where a customer contacted us with a potential breach, and we uh, we actually contacted DHS and let them know of this whole situation. So it was not a breach, and actually it turned out that that particular county um, was exercising um, a, a test. And so it actually, the whole process worked. We did not know that, and so... Um, it was. We were happy to, to communicate that to DHS. Thank you, Ms. Mathis. Thank Gen- you, Madam Chair. Gentlemen, time has expired. As I mentioned earlier, we will have a second round of questions, and I will uh, begin in answer to a question from uh, Mr. Butterfield. Mr. Burt testified under oath that they do not currently have voting systems in the United States with remote access software installed, if I heard you correctly. That, that is our belief, that none of the systems uh, in use today. Would that be true for the other two vendors? Yes. We have never had remote access. Okay, let me ask you this. Do you uh, sell uh, voting machines that have network capabilities installed? Uh, you, can you be more specific? Sure. Yes, you, may, you don't have the software installed, but you have the capability of installing it. For remote access software? Yes. We do not. We no longer uh, install any remote access software that that process was discontinued in 2006 and is not allowed by any of the EAC testing. Mr. Poulos? Uh, Chairperson, we've never had any kind of remote access in our Dominion products. Capabilities. Capabilities. Uh, but okay. I will say um, that uh, I, I do want to draw a caveat. Some of our tabulators have the, uh, are designed around the ability to have an external plug-in uh, modem to transmit unofficial results after it polls close. Okay. So we do not have remote access capabilities, as as you mentioned. So similar to Mr. Polos, we have, um, as required by certain states, a remote transmission capability as an add-on. So that's something that we may want to look at further. I want to talk about remote uh, ballot marking devices. Some experts in election security have raised concerns to me about the risk of these um, uh, devices uh, that store information about the choice of voters made in a non-transparent format, for example, a barcode or a QR code, so that when the voter doesn't actually, he may be checking something, but it's not what actually is going to be tabulated. Do you provide that equipment that does it in that way, any of you? Uh, yes. We do, yes. We do not, actually. Our, um, our technology for our uh, Verity Duo product actually capture, does not put any voter choice in a barcode. We have uh, optical character um, recognition okay. technology. I have a question. Um, for over a decade, my smartphone has had the capability to prevent unauthorized, unsigned code from running on the device or interfering with its operating systems. Do all of your election systems currently in use prevent unauthorized code 
or altering uh, altered operating systems from running on them in this way? They do, Chairperson. I'll give you one example. Uh, the memory stick that we purchased from a U.S. manufacturer, our election management system won't even operate unless they know that it's a particular serialized number okay. memory stick. So if you bought a memory stick from an office depot, it wouldn't recognize it in the system. Which How about now. you, Mr. Phillips? Uh, similar, all of our Dominion products that are certified are the same. The, the exception that I will point out to the committee is we do support l some legacy systems that are still in use uh, that were designed in, in, in the remaining cases over 20 years ago um, that do not have this capability. Our Verity product line actually in, in incorporates a, a feature called whitelisting, which actually only allows the, the programs that uh, we permit with our Verity design. So it actually blocks everything except for those four. So it's the opposite of blacklisting. So it's actually even more secure. I'd like to follow up with you. Uh, Mr. Burt, because uh, from the previous te testimony, you're the company is the only one that provides elect election infrastructure that is not just the voting machines itself. Uh, you've indicated your interest or uh, suggestion that the EAC have greater jurisdiction over voter registration, election management systems, electronic poll books, and the like. I'd like to know that even without that jurisdiction, what, um, what are you doing right now to ensure that these products are safe, secure, up-to-date, and utilize current technology best practices? Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, with respect to the poll books, all of the data is encrypted on the poll books. Uh, with respect to the voter registration systems, which I think is, is more commonly uh, a question for folks, we've recently worked with the Center for Internet Security to uh, install Albert sensors, which is a national monitoring system, uh, and we, we've wrapped this around our voter registration systems that we, uh, that, that we house. And so, for example, a ranking member, the example that you brought up related to Illinois going back to the 2016 election, that's the kind of activity that an Albert sensor is meant to detect and prevent uh, with respect to a voter registration system. Thank you very much. I see my time has expired, so I will turn to the ranking member for his uh, additional five minutes. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair, and thanks again to the witnesses. I, I think all of our colleagues on both sides of the aisle have the same interest. We want to protect our elections. We want to make sure that all machines that are used to uh, tabulate our free and fair elections are, are up to the task. So thank you, each of you, for being here today. Um, I know some of the questions can't be comfortable. I know there's been a lot of talk about supply chain issues. Um, yes or no questions? We'll start with you this time and go that way. Ms. Mathis, um, is it currently possible to build an election machine entirely out of U.S. US manufactured parts? I don't believe that it is possible today. Okay. To Mr. Polos? Not to my knowledge. Mr. Burt? I do not believe it's possible. Now, do you see why that concerns all of us up here? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are, are the parts in your supply chain, Ms. Mathis, that come from abroad also used in other industries? Yes, they are. Okay. Mr. Polos? Uh, yes, they are. Mr. Burt? They are. They're used in a variety of industries. Yep. Probably some of them are present in the room today in the various equipment that you see around the room. Like? We see cameras, we see a variety of electronics, uh, we see switches. Uh, there, there's, there's almost nothing that we interact with from an electronics point of view. Of course, your phone, <laughs> thank you, uh, that have 
parts that are made overseas and distributed to a variety of manufacturers. So it's, it's the critical components of your election machines that we're all concerned about. And you've testified earlier that because we have a global supply chain, you're not able to, you're not able to comprehend a machine that can be built right now with completely U.S. parts. So tell me, tell us, make us feel comfortable here in this country that your machines with the critical components are U.S. manufactured or they're going to be able to not be compromised. Crickets. Crickets. Aha, and so therein lies the problem. All three CEOs from Dominion, ESNS, and Hart all gave the best political answer they could, saying that they could not ensure that their machines could be made in America, and therefore they could not ensure that their election machines are 100% secure. Not to knock these CEOs, not to knock these companies. It's just the plain truth. No voting method is secure. And that does it for another edition of Digging Deeper. We appreciate you listening. Remember, visit diggingdeeper.us for more or call in at 940-386-1806 and let us know what your thoughts are. If you'd like to be on the show, that's great. If not, we can surely use your thoughts and your research capabilities. Join us at diggingdeeper.us. Until next time, keep your eyes open.